Welcome to Mysterious Creations. I'm your host, AJ, and today I am speaking with Dr. Justin Sledge about Kabbalah and his channel Esoterica. His knowledge of this and many other esoteric subjects is helping to bring the hidden forward, making the esoteric less esoteric. Now on to the show. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, hi, folks. I'm Dr. Justin Sledge. I am a university teacher. I work in philosophy and religious studies, and I'm probably more well-known uh, as the host of the channel Esoterica, which is a, a YouTube channel that studies the uh, academic side of Western esotericism. So that would include things like alchemy, Kabbalah, uh, magic, the occult, and and things like and things like that. So I uh, work both as a uh, university lecturer, but also as a YouTube host, uh, popularizing uh, stud the study of academic Western esotericism. Wonderful. That's where where I found you uh, at the at the request of uh, my my teacher Marco Visconti. He okay. He really enjoyed uh, many of your your YouTube. Uh, lectures and and uh, suggested you to me wonderful so, marco's marco is a great guy yes he is in jewish mysticism it's a very ancient system many many different uh, aspects how far back do you theorize that uh, it goes and can you tell us anything about pre-kabbalah mysticism so we should separate between Jewish mysticism as a general category and Kabbalah as a form of Jewish mysticism. So Kabbalah, as we know it, really dates back to the 13th, maybe the very end of the 12th century of the Common Era. It originated primarily in southern France and in, in Spain. So that's Kabbalah, and that's the mysticism that most people know about. Prior to that, there were other forms of Jewish mysticism that we now typically refer to as Hechelot or Merkava mysticism. This is a form of mysticism in which um, something like Jewish shamans would attempt to uh, travel to the realm of the divine, the palaces of the divine, in order to pass through the various uh, heavens or the various palaces of God. That's the word Hechelot, Hechal. And by going, uh, descending into the God's divine realm, they would eventually be given a glimpse of the divine throne. Um, and once they were given a glimpse of the divine throne, they could even be sometimes transformed themselves into an angel. That form of mysticism dates back quite a ways. Um, depending on how you calculate it, it may date back all the way to the visions that Ezekiel had uh, during the Judean exile in Babylon in the 6th century BCE. So that's really early. Okay. Um, but certainly we have manuscripts of this mystical tradition that date to the, toward the, um, the Talmudic period. So this is the fifth or sixth century of the common era. So it dates back quite far, probably to the second temple period. We don't have a ton of literary evidence for that, but we certainly have literary evidence, um, published sometime between the Mishnah and the third century, the very beginning of the third century common era and the composition of the um, Babylonian Talmud in the, in the 6th or 7th century of the Common Era. And so 
it's important for people to realize that the Kabbalah has existed for about 800 years. That's been the dominant form of Jewish mysticism um, for the past 800 years. But for the 800 years prior to that, Merkava mysticism, Hechelot mysticism, was the dominant form of Jewish mysticism prior to that. Even There's even some glimpses of it in the New Testament where Paul talks about being uh, taken up to the third heaven. That's probably a reference to these practices, even in, back in the, in the New Testament. So that's back certainly in the first century. So these are very, very, very old uh, forms of mysticism of which we have, you know, substantial literary remains. I wonder if there would be any record in the Babylonian uh, tablets that would speak to something even earlier. It's it's possible. I mean, most most religions have some degree of um, supernatural travel in their religion, uh, whether shamanic journeys to the spirit realm or something like that. Um, as far as Babylonian tablet, uh, tablets, I mean, there there is some evidence of the Judean presence after the Babylonian exile in 586 that actually are recorded in some of these Babylonian tablets. But most of those tablets are about purchases and grain exchanges and receipts and things like that. So no, no religious text about the, the Judean presence in Babylon at that time or very little uh, religious practice or uh, presence. So probably not there, but... Um, but it certainly was the case that, you know, assuming Ezekiel is engaged or a part of this tradition or maybe the progenitor of it, um, it could have been practiced. And, and the visions that both Ezekiel and Isaiah have um, in their respective prophetic books could be an early stratum of this uh, form of Jewish visionary mysticism. It's also, worth, it's also worth mentioning that that form of mysticism was actually taken up into the Kabbalah and survives. I mean, there, this, it's a form of mysticism that it's not like the Kabbalah destroyed it. The Kabbalah um, changed it, transformed it dramatically. And there are, for instance, um, Hechelot texts, novel Hechelot texts that are actually appended into the Sefer Zohar, of course, the most important book of, uh, of the Kabbalah. So one shouldn't think of it just as there was Hechelot, Merkava mysticism, and then Kabbalah arose and Kabbalah got rid of it more that Kabbalah absorbed it and transformed it. Kabbalah has withstood the test of time and multiple tragedies and criticisms. Each time it comes out stronger and a little better. Why do you think it has held fast and how do you think it will evolve into the future? So yeah, Kabbalah has endured a lot of tragedies, you know, the one can think of the exile of 1492, the Alhambra decree that uh, was catastrophic for the Jewish communities in Spain, where the Kabbalah was basically born. And of course, later, um, later things with um, everything, the Holocaust. So yes, Kabbalah has, has endured. Uh, and I think it probably has endured because Jewish people have endured. Um, Judaism is a religion that has benefited from the fact that it is not centralized. There is no Jewish Pope. There is no Jewish church. There is no Jewish there's no way to get Jews all in one place and kill them all. And so because we are a diasporic people and because our theology is a diasporic theology, Kabbalah has to to an end, but in a very specific kind of way. So um, what I would say is I think that it's Kabbalah has just withstood the test of time because Jews have. And it, it, it's just a part of, um, you know, in the same way that Thomism has become basically the theology of, of Catholicism at some level. Kabbalah has just become the theology of Jewish people. 
And so insofar as Jewish people have survived, then, then Kabbalah will, will have survived and will go on to survive. Now, how will it evolve into the future? That's a great question, because a big part of what happened in the 20th century was that Kabbalah was actively suppressed by many movements of, of Judaism. And it was only really in the 1960s and 70s, and really a little bit after that, that it became you know, back into the Jewish mainstream. And so I think that will probably happen is that a, a, a strange thing will occur where Kabbalah will get normalized as a form of theology within the, within the, the liberal Jewish community. Of course, the, the, the Haredi Jewish community, the Orthodox community, is also uh, undergoing, apparently, innovations in the world of Kabbalistic practice and theory. And so the real question will be, will Kabbalah as it's practiced in the ultra-Orthodox Haredi world, how will that look compared to Kabbalah as it develops in the more liberal progressive world? And I suspect they won't look much alike, mm. but uh, they are evolving and progressing on their own. So uh, I'm not one to predict the future. I think that's always a losing bet. Yeah. Um, but I do think that one of the more interesting things that will occur is that Kabbalah will become renormalized um, in the progressive Jewish world where people will be, for instance, studying the Sefer Zohar for the first time. And there may be entire communities for the first time studying the Sefer Zohar as a canonical piece of Judaism, whereas for the past couple hundred years, uh, it has been practically forgotten as a uh, canonical piece of Judaism. Yeah. Everyone has heard of the about the Zohar, but in your lecture, you mentioned a few unknown books of Kabbalah. What is one book you wish would be uh, studied more? Yeah, what is the one book you wish people knew more about? So the Zohar, obviously, I wish people knew more, more about it because it's the foundational text. You know, you can't do Kabbalah without studying the Zohar. It's simply impossible. Um, so you have to learn to study the Zohar to do to understand Kabbalah. What book would I say that I wish were more available, more studied? So if you have, if you've gotten a relatively good mastery of Kabbalah and a relatively good mastery of the Zohar. I think the book that I would really encourage people to read, which there is no translation of, unfortunately, is as uh, uh, is, is Moshe Cordovero's The uh, Garden of the Pomegranates, the Pardes Rimomim. Um, it's, it's probably the most, I get flack for this by the Lurianic people out there, but they can come at me, bro. Um, uh, the, I, I, I find Lurie, I find Lurie and Kabbalah to be too Baroque and too contradictory and, and, and basically a big mess. Moshe Cordovero had a much more rational system, much more systematic understanding of, of Zohar and a much more coherent system for understanding what goes on in the Sefer Zohar. And so I, I would say that Cordovero's part of a meme is actually a much more rigorous, much clearer much less contradictory system for understanding what's going on in the Zohar and what's un, what's going on in terms of understanding the the nature of the spherot and the nature of uh, the origin of the world and the origin of evil. And so I would say that, you know, I would, I would really be on team Cordovero and I really wish that they were a really good translation of his Pardes from Mamim. Uh, there isn't, there's not one on the horizon to my knowledge. Um, the book is pretty extensive. It's a substantial tome even in Hebrew, I suspect that uh, if it were translated in English, it'd probably go into four or five volumes at least. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a chunk of a tome. Um, so I would say that in addition, to, in addition to that, he also wrote an extraordinarily long uh, commentary on the Zohar itself. I think that is ongoing in publication. I think they're up in 23, 24 volumes. 
So okay. it is a substantial text. So I would say the, the what I would love to see is the corpus of Cordovero get studied, get translated. People could get access to it. I'm just thankful that the, that the Zohar is available now that people can take and, and people who don't read English or don't read Aramaic rather, and they can t- pick up the, the Pritzker version by Daniel Matt. And with the exception of, you know, some pretty important sections that are not translated, like the Raya Mahimna, they, they can get access to uh, the Zohar in a very approachable uh, edition. So again, just be very thankful what's, about what's out there, as opposed to not being thankful for what's out there and demanding more. Um, and so now the Zohar is out there, maybe in a generation after I'm dead, Pardes um, Rumamim will be eventually rendered into English as well. Hopefully before then. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm. I, I don't count. Uh, I don't count on it. But it'd be nice. But uh, I think that if people really want to study it, they should probably work in on their Hebrew at this point. Uh, right now, I'm trying to learn Sumer, uh, Sumer, and that is one of the most difficult languages I've ever encountered. So I think I might step into Hebrew and basically bang my head against the wall because it's it's another language that's that's very big to learn from what i've heard i would say that uh, in many ways that it's much easier to learn to read hebrew than sumerian sumerian's a, it's a very unusual language and um you kind of you kind of have to read you have to learn to read akkadian first basically because we don't really yeah so you're, you're re- we're always reading sumerian through it through an akkadian glass darkly um, which is the same way, by the way, if you learn Aramaic, no one just learns Aramaic. You're always learning Aramaic via, via learning Hebrew. So some people are like, I want to learn to read the Zohar in the original. I'm like, well, go read, so take three semesters of Hebrew and then, um, then begin thinking about learning Aramaic and then you the peculiar Aramaic of the Zohar. So studies that will take me the rest of my life, <laughs> at least a life, at least a life. Can you talk a little bit about Zoroastrianism and its influence on Jewish mysticism. So this is a bit of a controversial topic these days. Um, so I'm going to be careful about what I say. Um, at some point, the Babylonian empire sacked by the Persians, right? So after 586, the Judeans are exiled to Babylon. Not long after that, 20, 30 years later, the Persian empire overthrows it. The Persian empire um, seems to have had some kind of dualistic religion as a state religion, probably some version of Zoroastrianism. We don't know exactly, actually, but probably some version of Zoroastrianism. And it seems like that religion was already kind of there, also around in the Babylonian Empire as well, sort of a, a, a religion that was around. And it seems like at some level, some ideas from what we call Zoroastrianism, like dualism, like messianism, uh, like the afterlife, like angels and demons and and tours of heavens and hells and things like this, things that we see in Zoroastrian literature also seem to have a direct impact on the Judeans that go home from Babylonian, from the exile in Babylon when they're released by uh, Cyrus the Great. And they begin the process of rebuilding their their homeland and also their, basically as a satrap of the Persian empire, Mm -hmm. uh, Cyrus wasn't doing it out of the goodness of his heart. He was doing it in order to rebuild his empire, basically have a buffer between him and the the Egyptians until he conquered the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And so it's unimaginable that these people went into those regions with a very provincial religion, if we're being honest, 
and didn't come back being influenced by an incredibly ancient culture and an incredibly powerful world religion like Zoroastrianism. And so it, the good, the guess these days is that this, these elements, dualism, angels and demons, messianism, none of those elements are to be found in Israelite religion. They return from Babylon and all of a sudden we see a lot of literature being written that seems to incorporate those ideas, things like the books of Enoch, the book of Daniel. Um, and from those texts, it seems like what we're getting is some degree of dualistic Persian, quote unquote, Zoroastrian influence. And typically we call that synthesis, Jewish apocalypticism. Mm -hmm. And so insofar as Jewish apocalypticism and Jewish mysticism, like Merkava mysticism intersect, then we can say that Zoroastrianism has had some kind of impact on them. But uh, the truth of the matter is it's really difficult to pin down exactly where those lines lie. And so most people are confident there's some impact, but showing the exact causal mechanism of the impact, there's still um, there's ongoing debate about exactly what that looked like historically. But I think most people agree that there's some impact, but when the impact happened, to what degree it happened, how it happened, how it lined up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's, um, I think that people are still painting with pretty broad brush strokes in that regard. Do you have any tips for anyone looking to study the Zohar? Yeah, this is a big, uh, a big task. I actually have a whole video on my channel about this, just sort of study tips for the Zohar. Um, what I would say is if you really want to study the Zohar, um, there are some parts of it that are harder than others. So don't start with the hard parts. <laughs> um, so I would start with some of the easier parts. Uh, the earlier parts of this composition of Zohar are a bit more easy to understand. This is a section of the Zohar called the Midrash Hana'ilam, the hidden Midrash. Those sections are a bit easier to understand. There are also shorter pericopes in the Zohar the, that are that are little textual units like the uh, Sabah Demish Pashtim, or the Yanuka, the child, or the old man, the donkey driver. And those sections contain a lot of good Zohar stuff, but they're contained. So you're not just like spinning your wheels about what in the world's going on in these sections. So I would, I would say that you would want to scale up your Zohar so that you're not starting at the most difficult parts, uh, because those parts are completely inaccessible if you don't know what's going on in them. Um, I don't, I, I know what's going on in them, and I still don't know what's going on in them. Uh, they're, you know, uh, you know, some of those sections are just impenetrable. So I would say one, uh, plan your Zohar study around scaling yourself up, not just diving in randomly. Okay. Um, the Zohar is a largely a commentary on the Torah. So if you don't have your Torah chops up, you need to study the Torah a bit. Mm -hmm. So I would say that if you're going to go read a section when the Zohar comments on the Torah, you need to go read the actual Torah section first and have a really good grasp about around what's going on in there because if you don't if you don't understand what's going on in that section of the torah there's no way you're going to be able to understand a commentary on it much less a crazy mystical commentary on it so you know it's like anything else if someone said hey how do i learn to ride a motorcycle i'd probably say go learn to ride a bike and if you told me right that you know how to ride a bike or you know or you something like that I'd be like well you probably don't want to start with a motorcycle you need to figure out what your balance is and things like that. So it's like anything else. I would say that with the Zohar, you would want to start off small and then work your way up. And the way you do that is by acquainting yourself with 
the Bible, acquainting yourself with the Torah, acquainting yourself with Jewish commentary literature, acquainting yourself with the Talmud. The Zohar assumes you know all that stuff, basically by heart. And then work your way up. Uh, Lastly, and I think it would be important, but it's not a total barrier. You got to learn some languages. You're just never going to really understand Kabbalah without having Hebrew, and you're never really going to get it to Zohar without having some grasp of its very unusual Aramaic. And I know that sounds like a tall order, and it is a tall order, but again, it's all about how much work you're willing to put in in terms of what you're willing to get out of it. And, um, you know, that will be a thing that one will, one will have to do. So it's tough, but you can do it. At the same time, if you don't want to do all that, you can just pick up a copy of the Pritzker Zohar in English and go to work. And it will be hard and confusing and bewildering, and that's healthy. Mm-hmm. And over time, it will begin to make sense. I can't tell you how long that will take, but it will begin to work itself out as you study the commentaries and as you study getting really getting into the language of it. And eventually you'll get your chops and you'll be off to the races. Again, uh, how long that will take? Uh, probably on the order of years, I would suspect. Yeah. There, there's a reason why uh, they said that 40 of you weren't allowed to learn the Kabbalah until you were 40 because it takes a long time to learn the language learn the religion learn the the stuff that's before to start learning that and, and not just that but to, that you're that you're married that you have kids that your mind is already stable about, yeah yeah and the idea is that um, that you're you're not going to go off the deep end uh, although those rules were actually only instituted after the whole fiasco with shabbatites v the false messiah in the 17th century uh, mm. prior to that people studied the Kabbalah at very young ages um uh, cordovero the guy i was just talking about earlier mm. he actually writes a book about how to become a kabbalist and he says i've started studying Kabbalah when i was like 23 so, okay um, so that whole 40 thing yeah it's a rule of thumb but it's not some it, it's not a you know it's not god's law you know it's not there's not like rules of rules of kabbalah be 40 and be married it, it's not that's not in there it's a rule of thumb and there's, there's good reasons for it but it's not some you know i'm only 40 now i just turned 41 last year and it's been kabbalah for years so okay i think being emotionally stable is the the requirement because in Coming from a magical standpoint, emotion is the medium by which magic is cast. And if you're not emotionally stable, that energy that you put out is going to be all over the place. And so learning a mystical side of things requires you to have some stable uh, base to work from. Yeah. Yeah. I would say emotional stability, psychological stability. You need financial stability. You need time. It takes time. You need to be able to, you know, you need to be able to not work all the time to study this stuff. You know, you need to have all psychological stability, emotional stability, mental stability. This stuff is very weird. So sure. I totally agree that uh, I, I would not, I would not hand someone who's unstable a mystical text. No, no that's how, how you end up with uh, cults and psychotic people psychotic people yeah through no fault of their own i mean through no fault of their own true well kundalini experiences if you go into 
a situation like that or take uh, ayahuasca, you can go insane mm-hmm. just from do- from doing that. And it's recommended that you learn something of what you're doing before you step into it. That's good. It's good advice. I'd agree. Can you talk about a, a little bit about gender fluidity in Kabbalah? Yeah. So one of the main, one of the central symbols in Kabbalah is the balancing of the male and the female. But the Kabbalah understands the divine as being both male and female. And what what you have to understand about the spherot is that all of them are are some aspect of male and female. And that the task of the Kabbalists and the task of the Jewish people, according to the Kabbalah, is to reunite them. They have, they've become estranged from each other, that the divine has become estranged from itself, and that the people, Israel, and human beings have become estranged from God. And that process of alienation is the, is the work of the Kabbalists in that process of alienation. And so what has to happen is that the male has to become transformed into the female, the female has to become transformed into the male, and they have to be reunited and rebalanced the way they were in their in their uh, their primal reality because in that most primal reality they're the male and the female were united into one androgyne queer divinity mm. and so the task of kabbalah is to queer divinity it's to reestablish at some level a gender free a gender less a, a transgender a post-gender divinity and by doing that, one has to learn to balance those forces in oneself. And so we talk a lot about the feminine aspect of God, the masculine aspect of God, uh, that God is, uh, God is yesod, is the masculine phallic aspect of God, and God is uh, malchut, is the feminine aspect of, of God as shchinah. And so you have a lot of this language in the Zohar about male and female and balancing out those forces. And so it, it does a number on you know, very traditional um, gender roles and things like that. Now, let's not say that's so radical that it sort of imagines that, you know, that, uh, that, that uh, in a full way, you, you completely go beyond male and, and female. It talks constantly about male and female. So it re- certainly reifies those highly, uh, those highly dualistic gender norms that you would have seen in the Middle Ages and you still see in the Haredi communities now. So on the one hand, it's pretty queer, and on the other hand, it's actually very conservative at the same time. And so it doesn't have the idea that, for instance, women can have blades to felon. That's never going to be in thing, Kabbalah. They're going to know men have to do the men things. Women have to do the women things. And in the Hieros Gamos, they're, they're, they're reunited as one. And there's lots of homophobic, or not, there's lots of like homoerotic stuff in the, in the Zohar and homophobic stuff in the Zohar. So it goes both ways. The text is very tortured in this regard because it's trying to think through gender along lots of different vectors at once. And on the one hand, sometimes it reinforces all of the worst kind of dualistic gender roles and gender essentialism. And on the other hand, there are wonderful sections where it really undermines that stuff and gives us a radically different vision of gender. Both of them are to be found in in Kabbalah. And so uh, depending on what you go in there to look for, you'll find You'll find both of them queer theorists love Zohar, hardcore gender essentialists love the Zohar uh, because at some level uh, it speaks to both of those because the Zohar itself is wrestling with what to do with, with, with gender and divinity. And that's, of course, a very complicated question that many religions wrestle with.
And Hebrew is also a highly gendered language. I mean, there are, only, yeah. there are two and only two genders in Hebrew, at least can, you know, traditional Hebrew. So, yeah, I mean, I think that like many mystics, they were dealt, they're dealing with incredibly difficult contradictions and gender and the divine and the unity of God. If God is a, is, is if, if, uh, if God is fundamentally echad, right. And God yeah. is one and the task of, of, of getting to God is a process of a yichudim of becoming one. Well, it can't be that there are two genders or any gender. It has to be some overcoming of that process. Yeah. Of course they struggled profoundly with, uh, with these with these concepts and you know they're also 13th century men writing in a 13th century concept you, i mean again you can't uh, expect them to be you know queer theorists living in san francisco in 2022 True. so uh so again i think that's it's um the task is to read them honestly and accurately and see them grappling with these ideas and uh make of that what we what we can See them for for who they are in the period that they lived in. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about women who contributed to Kabbalah? So, if what you mean by contributed is contributed literarily to Kabbalah, well, the answer is I can tell you very little about that because we have very little evidence of women literarily contributing to um, the development of Kabbalah. There's just not a ton there in the Middle Ages. Um, but that's not to say that women weren't around and it's not to say that women weren't contributing. I mean, these guys were all married. They had to talk to their wives when these guys came home from Safed and said, we have to make 12 halot for, uh, for, for Shabbat. And I'm sure the women were like, what? Or maybe the women were coming up with this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that, uh, one of the big problems is we don't know, because we don't have much literary evidence of how women contributed to the Kabbalah in the middle ages or early modern period. But at the same time, we do see them actively participating in the background. For instance, in the Shabbatian movement, women were very popular and prophetic in the Shabbatian movement. Often many women in Dybbuk cases who were possessed, almost overwhelmingly the people possessed by Dybbuk's were women. So they're there and they're active and they're, they're, they're doing things and they're part of it. But when we look at it as if it were only a literary movement, or only a practical movement, or only a movement uh, going on in the synagogues, then the women vanish. And I think the task is to, one, do more work to find if there is literary stuff, because there probably is. Mm-hmm. Two, we have to begin looking at the sociology of Kabbalah, not just the literature of Kabbalah. Because if we look at the sociology of Kabbalah, we look at the ritual practice of Kabbalah, we look at this, the, the material culture of Kabbalah, then I think that the women will come out of the background into the foreground and we'll get a much better focus on what role they played. And there is some pioneering work going on in that field. But at this point, at least, you know, we, is there a Kabbalistic version of St. Teresa of Avila or a Rabia? No, we don't have that. There's, that's just not there. We don't see that. And that's probably also a numbers game. I mean, people forget the Catholic church was massive in the middle ages. There's a yeah. bunch of Catholics. Uh, the Muslim community was huge in the Middle Ages. There are a bunch of Muslims. The idea that you play the numbers game, there's going to be a woman that's going to eventually pioneer something. Well, yeah. the Jewish communities are tiny comparatively. They're t- tiny, tiny communities. And so I think that's also just a numbers game where, you know, uh, that the Jewish community was so small that they're just generating less people. And therefore, uh, at some level, you're just going to get less women objectively. And therefore, the odds of uh, one of them popping out, you know, 
to uh, do to to do religiously ingenious things is probably just statistically uh, lower, unfortunately. And there's situations where it could have happened and been buried. Could have been. It could have been. And also, you know, we all should always remember that uh, medieval Jews are living um, either in Christian lands or Muslim lands. They're not free. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of what has to go on is that Jews have to over police their communities, which is to say they're not they're not in a situation where they can be especially daring, at least not in public. And so there's just no way that a conservatively minded Jewish community is going to let um, women get too out of the reins because then they would easily earn the ire of, the, of their Christian neighbors who are eventually going to expel them from Spain anyway. I mean, that's already lined up. Yeah. And ditto in the Muslim world, the Ottoman Empire was much, much more tolerant, but much more tolerant of of women having leadership roles and these strange mystical communities, probably not. And so also there's just a, again, you're talking about an insular community living at the behest of people whom they may have um, antagonistic relations uh, with, to say the least. Mm. So basically they, they had to hide their religion a lot of the time to kind of. Yeah. They had to censor works. I mean, I mean, Nachmanides, who was a pretty famous Kabbalist, one of the earliest Kabbalists had to actively argue with Christians in public in these disputationes where he had to basically argue with Christians that you should be even allowed to live in their lands. And so you're, I mean, you're in a situation where you'd have to basically defend your right to exist. You're not going to go out of your way to let mm-hmm people that hate you know that you have a lot of other weird beliefs that uh that might alarm them or let gender roles get too out of control where you know that would be uh that would be something that they would um target you for for whatever reason can you talk a little bit about the possibility of the first transgendered poets i'm gonna murder this name mm-hmm. uh Kalinus family yeah no, this is from the uh, Colonymous family. The Colonymous family were were uh, Jews originally from Greece who had immigrated to Italy. There's a great book about this, about uh, queer and trans and LGBTQ Jews in the Middle Ages called The, the Rainbow Thread, I think it's what it's called. It's a really good book. Um, but what we have basically is a, is, a, uh, is a a poem written by one of the members of the Colonymous family, a very powerful Jewish family. And he... Uh, laments not having been born a woman and he goes into great detail of all the ways in which he wish he he wishes he was he were he was born a woman and there's a kind of idea in which on the one hand the traditional prayer right is you know thank you god you know uh Asani isha thank you god for having made me not be a woman and this poem subverts that where he actually says no i wish i were born a woman and i feel all this kind of weird religious guilt about this desire to be a woman and a lot of uh, contemporary scholars have looked at this and, you know, he goes on and on and on about all the things he wishes he could do as a woman, wear these clothes and things like this. And so it seems to be, I don't know if he was the first trans poet, but he certainly, it, he, they, she um, clearly has an, a, a deep desire to not live in the gender they were assigned and has really thought carefully and poetically about the tragedy of having been born to their mind perhaps in the wrong gender and therefore you know if they're living in a different time would they have been the kind of person that would have um transitioned maybe 
that seems reasonable to me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, this is a great poem by from the Colonists, from the Colonists and Colonists. A lot of them have the same name. Mm-hmm. But um, if you're gonna check the book out uh, for any folks out there that are interested in sort of medieval, early modern LGBTQ uh, folks, the Rainbow Thread. It's an anthology of of these materials in which this this particular poem is uh, is in there. That's cool. I I actually uh, have heard of the book, so. That's why we put that in there. It's a good book. It's a great book. Um, it's not particularly Kabbalistic, but it's it's a good book, just the same. There is a rumor or myth going around in the Torah or one of the Kabbalah books that mentions that there were spirits, entities, or godlike beings before man. Can you uh, debunk? this myth or speak about it so there certainly is the case that there are creatures made before people or creatures that existed just eternally alongside with god these mm-hmm. creatures are called the tanaim um the ones of the deep the deep ones it's very lovecraftian um those entities just sort of were there it appears in in, in the hebrew bible uh, in the sort of murky waters of primordial chaos and the Zohar makes a big deal about them, really. The Zohar really, um, in Zohar 2, somewhere around 35 or so, it really really ascribes them the origin of, dev- of evil itself. They really think that these beings are, these Tanaim, Leviathan, is um, the, or, you know, the progenitor of metaphysical evil. So the Zohar makes a big deal about them, big deal about them. So there are. Now, um, there, the rabbinical literature also makes mention of um these spirits that were created right before the first shabbat and because they were created right before the first shabbat right when god was going to rest and everything else was going to rest they never got bodies and because they never got bodies and we did they hate us and these become the ruchot the spirits or the shadim the devils the demons and so they're kind of pitted against us um and in kabbalistic literature they tend to emerge from um, what's called the Sitra Achra, the other side. Mm-hmm. This is a kind of dross thrown off by the Sphira of Dean or Guvura. And that dross thrown out, thrown off by Dean or Guvura is kind of unchecked by mercy, unchecked by Chesed. And that becomes evil. It becomes evil. And that forms a, an opposite side of the, of the, of the Sphirot. And evil dwells in there. And there are all kinds of demonic beings that get generated in that in that moment. And so insofar as that story for the creation of evil, the the idea of the evil is created as a part of Sitra Akhra, the other side, then sure, like in some sense, those that that world exists before Malchut by definition. Mm-hmm. And that's before our world comes into existence, although uh, Adam Kadmon kind of existed prior to that, and that's where the souls of all human beings come from. And um, depending on how you read your your Zohar, uh, no one had physical existence until uh, the sin of Adam, and then that uh, basically plunged uh, all the spirits, all the spiritual substances into into physical reality in a very Gnostic kind of way. So the answer is yes, but it depends on how you want what stories you want to read, because the story there there are half a dozen stories. They don't logically make sense together. And you have to kind of pick and choose which of these stories from rabbinical literature, from the Midrashim, from the Talmud, from the Zohar, 
uh, from later literature, like uh, stuff written by Isaac Luria or really written by uh, Chaim Vital. It all depends on which of these pieces of literature you want to pick up and go with. Um, so it really, yeah. So uh, the answer is, yeah, there are all kinds of things that existed before human beings. The question is, um, what do you mean by human beings? What do you mean by before them? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by other kinds of creatures? Um, so the answer is yes. And the answer is, and it's really complicated. I did not want to kind of focus on throughout this one about the Dybbuk mm-hmm. and the Dybbuk box. But I know that the Dybbuk is in in Jewish folklore. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain or debunk Dybbuk boxes and explain what the Dybbuk actually is for the public, please? Yeah. Of course. So Dybbuk's are a primarily 16th century Kabbalistic development. I'm actually doing a big episode this week on how uh, Dybbukim, Dybbuk's developed, the concept of Dybbuk's. So basically Dybbuk's are people in life that committed such atrocious sins that they don't warrant Gehenna. So Gehenna is the closest thing you're going to get to Jewish hell. Mm -hmm. It's a place of torment spiritual torment that lasts exactly one day shy of a jewish year and because whatever sins you committed you have to be purified of them you go to this place of torment and for not more than one year you're tormented there and you're purified of your sins well some people commit sins that are so bad they don't even merit that and so their soul doesn't go to hell it simply has to roam around forever they're sort of stuck in the limbo of this world. And this is apparently incredibly agonizing. It's, it's agony to not have a body. Bodies are a core part of Judaism. Judaism is not a religion that, that says your soul is really you. And, you know, you're going to escape this world. I mean, your body's bad. Mm-hmm. Like Gnosticism. Jewish Judaism is not Gnostic in that way. We love our bodies. We celebrate our bodies. We, we are all about being embodied. And so the idea of a soul without a body is a horrifying idea in Judaism in a way that I think maybe some Christians and other religions are like, yeah, that's the whole point is to get out of our body. Judaism is nothing like that. And so the the soul of this especially sinful person is doomed to roam around without a body. And this is incredibly agonizing for them, much more agonizing than being in Gehenna. Um, being in Gehenna is bad, but at least you're only there for one day shy of a year or whatever. Yeah. And even get Shabbat off. The, the, the punishments end on Shabbat because you're not allowed to punish, be punished on Shabbat even. So these spirits uh, of dead people who are sinful want to get back into a body. And so what they do is they, they attempt a process called Ibor, impregnation, in which they, because of a sin committed by a person, that opens up their sin to become impregnated with the soul of this sinful person Mm -hmm. and they cling to the souls of the living they want to live in the souls of the living the problem is the soul is a very sinful bad soul and it acts as a kind of parasite on the soul of decent people of good people can cause them to become evil and make bad decisions and you know you don't want that Mm -hmm. and so the word for to cling to in hebrew is dabak like the word glue in hebrew is from the same root word and so the dibbik is just a soul that has gotten into a person, an evil soul that has gotten into a person and is clinging to them. And this clinging to them is kind of a parasitic relationship. And so the task of uh, 
of an exorcist is to expel the Dybbuk from that, that person. So Dybbuk's mostly want to live in people, although they can't live there forever without killing the host. If, if, if they will physically kill the host. In fact, most early Dybbuk exorcisms in the 16th century killed the people that they were, that they were in. Mm-hmm. So they want to be in people, but if they can't be in people, they can temporarily be in animals. They can temporarily be in animals and they can even sometimes be in um, things that used to be animals like meat or leather or something, but they can't be in boxes. They have to live inside of something. They have to live in some, inside of something with a soul or something that recently had a soul. And so they, you, a dibbit can't get into a box because a dibbit has to get into a spiritual thing. And so there's no way to trap a dibbit in a box. They have to go from soul to soul. And now they can travel great distances to get into a soul, but they don't want to be outside of a soul. It's incredibly agonizing to them. And so I don't know of any literature, Jewish literature, Kabbalist literature, in which dibbits could be put into boxes. And I don't know that idea ever developed until that story from like an eBay auction in like the 2000s, where this where this, uh, this idea came from. Now, let me say something about folklore. Folklore isn't a static thing. Folklore doesn't... Mm. It isn't frozen. It's not concrete. Folklore changes. Yeah. And so on the one hand, I don't want to be the guy saying divots can't go in boxes and therefore divot boxes are stupid and no one should ever tell stories like that. That's not for me to say. What I can say is there's no reason in Jewish folklore up to the moment in which someone made a story about a divot box in which divots could ever go into boxes because that makes no sense given what divots are and how they operate. Yeah. So I'm not going to tell anyone what horror movies to make. Like people can make whatever movies they like. What I would say is I think you would actually make better horror movies if you stuck to the folklore because the folklore is very rich. um, And the actual traditional folklore is very rich and very complicated and has all kinds of cool rules about how Dybbuk's work and how they don't work, what, who they can, who they can target, who they can, how they target them, et cetera. So Dybbuk boxes, basically a thing that got invented 10 years ago. Prior to that, I don't know of any stories in which Dybbuk's ever were put into non-living things. They have to go into something that's either living or something that's recent, very recently dead. There are a couple of cases of Dybbuk's where the Dybbuk has left the body of like they've, uh, um, they've gone out of a body mm-hmm. and that body has perished and they've come back into the same body rapidly. But, the, but when they come back in, they're no longer animated that body anymore. The bodies are sort of weirdly moving around. So they, they can get back into the, the, their previous dead body, but only if it's very, very, very recent in terms of uh, how long they can do this. And there's a custom in, in, in Judaism um, called being a shomer. Yeah. This is the custom where if a person's died, that person, the corpse is never allowed to be alone. They always have to be with another living human being. And typically, traditionally, the task of that human being is to stay up with them all night long until they get buried and read Psalms and the Zohar and other kinds of uh, holy text precisely to prevent a Dybbuk from coming in and getting into them. That first 20 hour, 24 hour period is very crucial. And so the idea is that the, the task of a Shomer is to um, prevent that from happening. And you have whole committees of people in, in Jewish communities who sign up for a two hour block of time at three in the morning or four in the morning or whatever to, to protect the body from, from Dybbuk's. Uh, there's a great movie about this called the vigil, which yep. I would say, if you're a, a big fan of horror films, uh, the vigil is a incredibly well-made Jewish horror film that um, 
that talks about you know that does, that smartly discusses Jewish demonology and uh, not Dybbuk specifically that that uh, deals more with a, a specific kind of demon called a mazik. But um, it's a great film if you're in the mood for a spooky Halloween movie that's Kabbalistically inspired and Jewish. The, the ritual, uh, the vigil, is a is a really good one. But so we've, we've been looking for for it ourselves for a while. Um, we can't get it here. We have to order it from from outside the country for some reason. Weird. I, I it's I don't know why why we haven't Weird. been able to locate it. Maybe just try to do a streaming on a VPN that's not a Canadian VPN. You might be able to get it streaming via a non-Canadian IP or something. But yeah, it's a good movie. It was on the it was on the uh, local sort of. Uh, I was on a panel about it, and I I really I was I was thinking I was going to be disappointed, but I was pleasantly surprised by how how well done it was. I've heard heard that, and like, I'm I'm going to see if I can try and get it get it up for Halloween. Yeah. It's a good book. It's a, it's a good it's a good story. Yeah. Last question. Do you have anything you'd like to touch on that we haven't talked about that you would like to say? Um anything we haven't touched on. I guess what I would say is that we're living in the golden age of Kabbalah in terms of access to literature. We have access to more literature than anyone has ever had access in Kabbalistic history. And I think that many people, especially people who are coming into Kabbalah through the Hermetic Kabbalah or through Western occultism, mm. they, they kind of get this, they kind of had the attitude that Kabbalah is like frozen in time and like the early 20th century with McGregor Mathers or whatever. And what I would say is that's wrong. There's a lot of Kabbalah out there. Yeah. And that if your only experience of Kabbalah is Hermetic Kabbalah in the form of Alistair Crowley 777 or uh, really early crappy translations of Sefer Yetzirah by McGregor Mathers or whatever. I would just say that that scholarship has been long outdated and that now you have access to incredibly rigorous, high quality translations of all the major Kabbalistic classics, Sefer Yetzirah, Sefer Bahir, Sefer Zohar. Um, and so I would just encourage people for whom uh, they have an interest in Kabbalah that, um, you know, sort of hit refresh on what you think is out there. Yeah, because there is a ton of high quality stuff out there, and um, and I would just encourage people to dive into that material, and uh, I think it would enrich their their uh, knowledge base of Kabbalah, but I think it would also enrich their their spirituality and um, their their practice at some level. Uh, there's this is such a rich literature; it's had such a decisive impact on Western esotericism. There is no Western esotericism without Kabbalah are one of the pillars of Western esotericism. And so insofar as that's true, I think it is a, I'd encourage people to to dive into it, uh, no matter what level of Hebrew you have, no matter what level of study you have, no matter what level of, um, of um, what you think, you know, give it a, give it a shot and you might surprise yourself and I'm sure you'll get something out of it. My original introduction was the Hermetic Kabbalah and uh the 777 and because in originally reading that how confused i was i went to other sort the other sources to kind of get the background of where alistair crowley came from and i figured 
he was not the greatest student of Kabbalah. He he was yeah. good. He was really good at what he what he did and what he created. Uh, but there, to me, there was something missing, and so I went. I'm I'm going further. I'm going to read the Zohar and see. I want to learn Hebrew so that I can read it in the Hebrew because I know full well that English translations, there's going to be certain words and certain inflections that are not going to translate to English in any way. So, and it's the same with the, with the Bible. Uh, I took 10 different Bibles and each one of them had different wording because they were translated by a different person. And so the wording was different and you can have wide variety of aspects mm -hmm. of that. And so, yeah, it's a task. That's a task. I'll, I'll also yeah. say that, that 777 is a badly outdated book, frankly. Um, I, the Hebrew in there is a mess and uh, Crowley's understanding of Kabbalah is uh, uh, more miss than hit. So, yeah, I, yeah. again, I, I think that uh, Thelema and other religions who look to Crowley's legitimate genius also have to realize that the, every genius has a horizon. And if we let all, as much as I love Bach, and I think Bach is the best thing ever happened to music, but if I limited myself to Bach and thought that all music, the, the horizon of music was Bach, I'm not really doing myself a favor by, by, by maintaining that, no matter how much of a genius Bach was. And so it doesn't matter how much of a genius Crowley was, and he certainly was of a certain kind, but to, but to think that mysticism and magic and occultism are basically the horizon of them was Aleister Crowley in the 1920s or something, that just seems, that's, just, that's patently wrong. It's patently like, you know, that's a, that's a, a, that would be bizarre if it were true. So I would just encourage people to, you know, realize that the horizon for Kabbalah, the horizon, the horizon for what is accessible um, as much outstripped things like 777 and uh, 777s is historically fascinating, but it is a deeply flawed text when it comes to its understanding of Kabbalah and even the Hebrew language, frankly. Is there anything you want to promote before we go off? I would say that, you know, if folks are interested in Kabbalah. I have a lot of Kabbalah videos on my, on my channel. Uh, it's a great start. Uh, again, I always tell people esoterica is a, my channel is a place to start your research it is a place that will help you get your footing on your research. It'll give you some access to text. Almost all my episodes have um, book recommendations. It'll give you access to grounded literature because there's a lot of ungrounded literature in Kabbalah. And so if folks are interested in uh, Kabbalah, they can check out my episodes on Kabbalah. But also I have a long, you know, I think 14 long, uh, episode long uh, lecture series on Kabbalah. That's, I think, one of the more exhaustive on, on the Internet at this point. It's not perfect, but it, it, it's certainly better than a lot of things out there. So I would say that if folks want access to something digestible, but still rigorous, um, Esoterica, the content I produce on Kabbalah, I think is pretty, pretty good overall. And uh, yeah, I encourage folks to check it out as a stepping stone as in their journey into studying Kabbalah more deeply. Thank you. That 14 episode stretch uh, in it, what actually draws me to you as a person is how well you disseminate the knowledge in a way that's easily digestible. 
a, it's very hard to do that and you do it I well. Appreciate it. Yeah. You know, I think that um, just because things are esoteric doesn't mean that, you know, doesn't mean that uh, they have to remain that way. And so esoteric has a, esoterica, the channel I run has a very ironic uh, mandate and that's to make esoterica not esoteric. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, that one can do that to some degree. There's always some loss in that process, but it's about empowering people to uh, to learn themselves because obviously you'll never learn better than when you're doing the teaching to yourself. True, true. Well, thank you for coming on. Of course, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. to thank Dr. Justin Sledge for coming on the show with us. His way of giving us an intricate subject in an easy, digestible way is wonderful. We support him and hope you will too. I'll put links to his channel and works in the show notes. As always, thank you for joining us, and please like, follow, and subscribe on whatever platforms you're following us on. 